All right, let's get into it. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of those realities. Now, this might sound double dutch here. The big idea here is the Old Testament law was a shadow of the real thing that existed in heaven. We looked at that last week, that what actually needed to happen was not to kill a whole bunch of bulls and goats, but someone needed to go into the true tabernacle, which is into God's presence in heaven and offer some blood that's acceptable to God. That was the true stuff, right? That, that was the real thing that had to happen. Everything else was a shadow. Now, by definition, if the rest is a shadow, it's not going to work. You need the proper thing done because the, uh, the other thing's not going to work because it's a shadow. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And that's, the author just saying, look, it didn't do the job. It didn't actually fix people up because the issue with all of us is, is sin, which is disobedience from God, which is evil, which in the Old Testament, I mean, the Old Testament has some very brutal things to say about sin. It says sin is filthy. Sin, the, uh, it's in Zechariah, I think, it, it talks about sin is filthy. And the word, the Hebrew word for filth, if it's used in a physical sense, means excrement and vomit. So if someone's filthy in a physical sense, that might be the word that's used. So when the Bible says you're filthy because of the stuff that you've done, it actually means that you're putrid and repulsive. All right? If someone had excrement and vomit all over them, you wouldn't have dinner with them probably. Okay? Or dinner would taste funny because of the smell. Anyway. And don't think about that too much. <laughs> it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not, cease, not have ceased to be offered? The big idea here is if they actually worked, they wouldn't be happening anymore. Uh, when the writer writes here, since the worshippers having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. So he just said, if the sacrifices actually work, it would have sorted things out and people wouldn't be thinking about sin as much. All right? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. So every year they had to go and they had to offer sacrifices that reminded them they were sinners. And it's kind of like, you know, people say, you're really negative. People who are really negative all the time. There's a negativity in a sense about the old covenant because there's a mess that needs to be cleaned up every year and the cleaning up reminds you of the mess. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So it never actually did the job. Consequently, when Jesus came into the world, when Christ came into the world, he said sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you've prepared for me now that might sound double dutch but the big idea here is what god's actually looking for is he's not looking for a bunch of bulls and goats he's looking for someone to actually do god's will and to get it done perfectly all right a body you've prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure then i said behold i have come to do your will o god as it is written of me in the scroll of the book this is way better than Kung Fu Panda, right? But in Kung Fu Panda, you've got like, isn't it like the dragon scroll or something that's up there? It's like the one per- there's one person who's worthy to do it and they need to actually come and work out how to get that stupid scroll down from off the ceiling and, and they're the one that can do it. And you can get a little bit of the sense here with Jesus. It's like what actually needed to happen was someone needed to be good enough to come in and to get this thing done. And Jesus comes along and he says, I've come to do your will and I'm going to nail it where everyone else didn't. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first deal, which is 
you guys and I are meant to do God's will perfectly, which none of us do. He does away with that in order to establish the second, which is this. And by that will, we've been sanctified through the offering in the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Is everyone okay? This is a bit, do you understand kind of where this is going? Jesus came in and he just purified people. All right? You couldn't do it on your own. The real guy came in, got it all right, entered into heaven with his own blood, got it all sorted out, and you got purified. That's, that's, the, uh, the op- that's where you sit right now. You've you got that opportunity. And every priest, think go-between, think mediator, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Notice the posture there, right? The first bit there, the priests stand all the time. Jesus did his job and then he sat, all right? And some of you wives probably feel this with your husbands, right? What are you sitting down for? The, the job's not finished, all right? Because usually what you do is you sit down when the job's finished, right? That's how it works. So the big idea here is, the Old Testament priests, their job was never finished. Their, ne- their job was never finished purifying people. But Jesus came and he offered one sacrifice and then he sat down. And this is really, really amazing stuff. And what's amazing about it is not that it's... A, not only that it's, it, it's, it's this amazing sacrifice, but it's actually only one. I remember reading somewhere in some Bible dictionary that often around... Passover time, it wouldn't be unusual for there to be 250,000 animals slaughtered in the temple. Now, that would be like living next to an abattoir if you were next to the temple, wouldn't it? I mean, that would stink, all right? But you think about how many animals, and then all of a sudden this one guy shows up, and he, there's only one sacrifice now, and it gets it all done. There's no need for 250,000 anymore. He gets it all done. The really interesting thing is not even angels get to sit down in God's presence, Listen to this, this is uh, Luke 1.19 says, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down. It's amazing. Hebrews 8 verse 1, now... Now, the point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus just gets it done and then he sits down. And he doesn't... It's not like, well, Jesus, there's all this other stuff that needs... No, there's no other stuff that needs to be done. He just... Uh, the one sacrifice, he sits down, it's done. It's, it's sorted out. And if, if you're a Christian, you don't need to freak out about it. If you're not a Christian, you need to become one because that would be a really good thing to know that all of your stuff's been sorted out once and for all, when Jesus died on the cross and he sits down. And your forgiveness is sitting down forgiveness, right? It's not like pending forgiveness, it's sit down forgiveness. It's done. It's absolutely done. Waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. But for by a single offering he is perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now you could meditate on that line and just chew it over and think about it. Not Buddhism meditation, right? This is like biblical meditation. 
You could chew over that for a long time, couldn't you? I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now, here's the last line in this section. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. Does anyone know why? This is like, you can actually say something here. Anyone know why? Why is there no longer any offering for sin when there's been forgiveness? Yeah, so it's gone. Like there's, the sin's gone. So why do you need an offering? Like you don't need an offering because you dealt with this. It's gone. It's like if you still needed another offering, if you still needed forgiveness, the, the sin wasn't dealt with. But when Jesus comes, it gets dealt with. All right. Which gets us to the author's point, which is this. Draw near. That was the intro, right? Probably the worst intro in the history of preaching. Okay. I probably just wasted the first five or ten minutes of most attentive time you've just given me, but we'll be okay, all right? We'll be okay. Here's the point. The author wants you to draw near. Here we go. Hebrews 10. We're just going to read the uh, section that I really want to focus on today, which is Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, all right? So think Old Testament temple. There's a holy of holies. There's a curtain there, and the high priest can go in there once a year. That's where the presence of God was. You just can't get to him. If you're a rank-and-file person, all right, you just can't get to him. If you're a high priest, you're probably on some kind of ballot system or they're working out which one's going to do which year, but they get to go in once a year. So now the writer's saying, you don't have to be like that. You've actually got confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way. Everything connected with Jesus is about living, right? It's about life. True? Anyone agree with me? It's just about life. He just gets life done. Everything he touches, it's just life. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. You remember I just mentioned to you in the temple there was a curtain and it stopped people from getting to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies in the middle of the temple. All of a sudden this writer is going, that's not the real curtain. The real curtain to get to God's presence is Jesus' body being torn on the cross. You go through that, you get to God. Through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God... He's just summarized everything. He's given you all the reasons why you should do the next thing he's going to say. You know what the next thing is? Let's draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right. Three things today. God's will is that you draw near to Him. God's will is that you draw near to Him without reservation. And God's will is that you draw near to Him together. That's what this is talking about in Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. So I'm just going to go through these three and... Um, explain them a little bit more first one is this god's will is that you draw near to him god wants you to draw near to him let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith let me put this even more clearly god commands you to draw near to him now if you don't love him that's going to be a that's going to be a heavy thing for you right but if you actually love him and you find him amazing, him commanding you to draw near to him is a precious thing, is it not? It almost gets the sound of a, a righteous, good father 
who's laying a law down for the good of his child. He says, draw near to me. Now, there's a negative side, obviously. Whenever there's a command, if you don't draw near to him, you're a disobedient child of his. But he wants you to draw near to him. This is an incredibly appropriate response to everything that's come before, probably over the last two chapters. Most of chapter 10 and most of chapter 9, he's been laying out good reasons why you should draw near to God. The great aim of the author of this book of Hebrews, his great aim is that you get near God. That's what he wants. He wants you to get near God. He wants you to have fellowship with him and he wants you to not settle for a Christian life that's a distance from God. He doesn't want that. You see, you've got confidence to go in now because of what Jesus did. You know, prior to Jesus doing his work on the cross, there would be no place that you'd want to avoid more than the presence of God. It's not the only person someone wants to see who's got excrement and vomit on them is probably the nappy sand challenge. You get what I'm saying? You're not getting into the Queen's courts in England looking like that or smelling like that. You're not going to get there. And you probably could get in a whole bunch of trouble. And that's what it's like with God. Without God, without Jesus' death on the cross, there's no place that you want to avoid more than the presence of God. But you know what? Once that sacrifice is made, there's no better place, true? And I know that there's a whole bunch of you here today and you love Jesus and you love God and it's a precious place to be, is it not? Isn't the the presence of God to be in His presence? There's no better place to be than in His presence. And you, you can probably look back over your life and you can see kind of high points and low points, high points where you've been really close to Him and low points where you're just going, I don't know what the heck's happening, but I'd love to be back where I was. Now, the interesting thing is, as you saw from, uh, I think, verse 19 there, Jesus does new things all the time. So one thing I realised a little while ago is I've got to stop thinking about, I want to get back to being as close to God as what I was two years ago and get in the swing of things because his swing is, no, we're going to do a new thing. Every time it's a new thing. So we're just going to take you higher and we're going to take you closer and, we, and you're going to be better friends and a, and a closer son of his. He's a great priest. It's a living way. You see, Hebrews 12 verse 20 talks about the Old Testament. The Old Testament kind of deal under the law was this, if even a beast touches the mountain where God was, it shall be stoned. So the orders in the Old Testament were always keep your distance. Always keep your distance. Only one guy once a year, keep your distance. Don't come too close because you're probably going to get torched by me. Now, because of Jesus, it's like come near. Do you see that? You just, you got, it's, it's really doughy language, but you're like the luckiest people in the world. Everyone who belongs to Jesus, it's the most amazing thing that God's not saying stay away, he's saying come near. So let me ask you this. How near are you to him? You see, people draw near all the time. Someone said to me the other day, my brother-in-law actually, he said, what does it even mean to draw near? You know, my response to him was this. I I think drawing near is a posture of the heart. That's what it is. You look around, you can see people drawing near all the time. I've got four kids. We've uh, bought them VIP passes for the theme parks and we went to the theme parks my boys all wanted to hold my hand all the time. All the time. Even my oldest boy, who he, he's starting to think it's probably not cool to hold hands. And to be honest, 
When my kids started holding hands, I thought it was a bit weird, right? But you know what? You know what holding hands is where the parent is drawing near. And I'll just be walking along, my hands down by my side, and I'll just come and slip their hand in, in my hand. It's like I want to draw near. What about this one? Can I sit on your lap? Isn't that, that's drawing near, isn't it? I want to draw near to you. And it's not like, you know, if, if you became more legalistic about it, you just go, here's how you draw near, you sit on someone's lap. That would be weird, right? Church would be weird if we all did that, right? Yeah, it would be. We'd find out who needs to go on a diet, maybe. I don't know. Do you see that the point there is actually there's a heart posture that's going on. It's not actually, drawing near is not the expression of it. Drawing near is the heart posture underneath, okay? What about this one? You can just touch someone and touching someone can mean drawing near, can't it? And I don't mean in any kind of sexual way. I just mean you can walk up to someone and you can just pat them on the shoulder. I mean, my boss in the school here, is a, a, he does it all the time. So you'd just be sitting there doing some work and he'll just come up and put his hand on your shoulder. Which is, there's a sense in which that's just kind of drawing near, isn't it? That's what it is. I mean, certainly if you're in a romantic relationship, you can put your arms around each other and, and, and a touch can communicate so much about drawing near. What about even sitting next to someone? Now, there's a lot of you, because of kids and everything, you're sitting on your own now, right? But if you actually came in and you decided, I'm going to sit next to that person, isn't that just drawing near? It's just like, I want to be with them. Can I come and visit you? You ask someone that. Well, what's that? That's drawing near. Texting someone. Most of the time is drawing near unless you're abusing them. All right? Which happens a bit. Even calling someone on the phone. What's that? What's drawing near? See, drawing near is a posture of the heart. Now, the biblical understanding of the heart consists of the mind, the will, and emotions. So it's interesting just at this point in time for you just to consider in what aspects... I mean, the heart is kind of seen as the seat of the personality in the, in the Bible, it's in the seat of the person, all right? And it's not seen as three pieces that you put together and you get a whole. These are descriptive... I mean, I don't have time to go through a theology of the heart, but these are descriptive terms that help you to understand how the heart functions, right? And it's the mind, the will and emotions. Now, have a look at that and just ponder for a minute... Can I see evidence of me drawing near in each of those areas? Because this is a Hebrews is saying in Hebrews 10, it says, draw near to God with a true heart. And then think about what would that actually look like? So, mind for example. How, how does one draw near to God with their mind? What would that look like? Now, it might look like you, you go home and you study the Scriptures a bit. I mean, that used to be a thing that people used to do is they'd set aside time to spend with God and then they'd set aside time each week to study the Scriptures. Now, some of you probably might think, oh, okay, so that's how you... Um, no, that's not how you draw near. That's an expression of drawing near. Does it make sense? And it's, 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 a, it's a drive inside of you that wants to get your mind in sync with the way that God thinks. If you were able to think the way that God thinks, you would be pretty near, wouldn't you? And the emotions, I mean, I haven't really preached on this here, but God commands people to have particular emotions. Did you know that? And some of his judgment in the Old Testament was because people served him, but they weren't happy about it. 
And I wonder, I mean, if we were honest about it, and, and maybe I knew everything, which would be really freaky for you and for me, all right? But I could just see whether you're actually serving God with happiness or whether it was a, you're a bit of an Oscar the Grouch about serving God. You're kind of that eldest son in the story of the prodigal son. He's just kind of doing his duty and there's no joy, no spring in your step. I wonder, I wonder what would be true. I mean, the summary of the commandments, isn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. True? He's commanding you to love. Now, I think lots of people say love is a choice and it is, right? But it's not just a choice, okay? My wife would be seriously ripped off if I said, I never ever feel any kind of affections for you. I just love you because I have to and that's what love is. It's just deciding that you're going to love someone. True? Any females here going, yeah, that, that'd be right. He'd probably get a scar on his nose from his wife, right? <laughs> True? It's a posture of the heart. Here's what John Piper says about um, drawing near. This drawing near is not a physical act. It's not building a Tower of Babel by your achievements to get to heaven. It's not necessarily going to a church building or walking to an altar at the front. It is an invisible act of the heart. You can do it while standing absolutely still or while lying on a hospital bed or on the train as you commute to work. This is the centre of the gospel, the good news. This is what the Garden of Gethsemane and Good Friday are all about, that God has done astonishingly and costly things to draw us near. See, if you love Jesus and you love God, you, you ought to be getting some kind of emotions starting to kick around about Because that's precious. Now, if you don't, that's a bit of a flag for you. Maybe, maybe you're not as near. He has sent his son to suffer and to die so that through him we might draw near. It's all so that we might draw near. And all of this is for our joy and for his glory. He doesn't need us. If we stay away, he's not impoverished. He doesn't need us in order to be happy in the fellowship of the Trinity, but he magnifies his mercy by giving us free access through his son in spite of our sin to the one reality that can satisfy us completely and forever, namely himself. In thy presence is fullness of joy at thy right hand of pleasures forevermore. So if you had to describe what your relationship and your nearness to God was like at the moment, how would you describe it? Is he like a work colleague for you? It's like you see him at work, you kind of do stuff together, but outside of work time it's like, we'll do my own thing, thanks. Maybe you'd call him an acquaintance. Maybe a friend. Maybe even some of you might say, he's my bestie. All right, so you're just going, no, we can say that. <laughs> For some of you, maybe he's an estranged spouse. He's kind of, it's someone I used to have something to do with, but I'm not that close to him now. Or maybe, maybe he's a small talk cousin. You know those? You don't see him often enough, maybe once a year if you're lucky and you just kind of talk small talk and that's kind of it. Maybe your best friend, maybe his child, his dear child. God's will is that you draw near to him. Number two, God's will is that you draw near to him without reservation. Check this out. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
You see, hope is all about trusting in God to fulfill his promises. Uh, Hebrews 6 verse 19 says, hope is the anchor of the soul. It's when you never, ever give up taking God at his word. You see, sin and disobedience comes when you believe something else in preference to him. So if someone treated you badly and you just want to absolutely torture them and burn them, all right? Psalm 16:11. we just read it, says, In your presence is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you choose to burn someone with your, with your tongue in preference to loving them, which might mean still correcting them and trying to help them to see what they've done, but if you choose to burn them over that, you've decided that it's going to be better for me if I just burn them rather than following God. Do you see that? Every single time that you turn from God, you're making a decision that you trust something else more than you trust God or you hope in something else more than you hope in God. And the weird thing is that the devil exists and he lies all the time and a lot of the time we believe a liar over the one who can't lie. True? So let me ask you a few... uh, Let me ask you a question. Do you balk at complete abandonment to God? complete now hopefully in a crowd this big there's some people just going i'm all in i'm all i'm just totally in i'm totally abandoned to god but i suspect with most people there's just a little part of you that just wants to not give a hundred percent you know you just give 98 percent yeah you know we sing songs i surrender all you know but there's just I suspect with a lot of people, there's just a tiny little bit and it's just going, I'm just, I'm just going to hold back on that little bit because I'm just not sure I want to give 100%. I think most of us, many of us, are a little scared of totally abandoning our lives to God because of what it might actually mean. That we might be wrong or it might be a complete waste of time. Or he might get me to do something that I don't really want to do. I don't know how this will end, so I'm just going to be careful giving my all. I want to have my fun. I want to have control of my life. I have doubts. It's too hard. I'm not good enough. I can't be good enough. I can't do it. See, personally for me, I'll be honest with you, one of my underlying fears that stops me from going all out often, a lot of the time, is the fear of finding out that it was all a waste of time and looking like an idiot. Just being honest, that's, that's my thing. And one of the scriptures that, I, that runs over my mind quite a lot is this one out of uh, Psalm 25 verse 3 that says, No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, ever. Because it's always a risk. It's always a risk to go all out. But this is the thing, and this is what the author of Hebrews is saying, the risk is a risk in banking on God's character. That's what it is because that's what hope is. Hope is about the promises of God and the promises of God are about whether he'll actually come through on what he says or not. So it's always about God's character. Check this out. Uh, 2 Timothy 2 verse 11 to 13 says this, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's an interesting twist at the end of that little saying. 
So if we totally give up the ghost on him, does he give, you know, does he totally become someone different and just morph into some of that? No, he doesn't. He's just, he's continually faithful. Now it is true, and you know, Jesus said the attitude that you have to him is the attitude he will have to you on judgment day. But you can trust his character. He will go on being faithful even if you're not. Even if you don't count him as faithful, he will go on being faithful. And you will be the one, and I will be the ones, we will be the ones that look silly. Because all of the times where I didn't count him faithful, all of the times where I didn't count him trustworthy, he will prove to be trustworthy. Every time. All right. Three. It's God's will that you draw near to him together. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Let us consider how to stir one up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This verse is not talking about the fact that it's some person's job in leadership in a church to do this. This is mutuality. This is not a top-down leadership issue. This is your job to do with each other. Now... The Greek word, and the New Testament was written in Greek originally, the Greek word for stir there, you know what that, you know what connotations or, or meaning that actually has? Let me tell you, it means irritation or exasperation. It's a really unusual word that this author actually uses here to describe stirring one another up toward love and good deeds. Now, we're going to do something that's going to make you a little uncomfortable, Okay. And if you're new at the project, you can have the survivor immunity bracelet or necklace or whatever the heck it is, and you can just not do it, right? But what I'd love to see, I'm happy for the front row to be empty, but I'd love to see everyone sitting next to each other. All right? Because we live, we live in an individualistic society, so let's try and make the last, the last row the only row that doesn't have spare seats. Can we all move? Come on, keep coming. There's still a row down the front here and there's another one over there. This is really awkward. <laughs> it's a bit intimidating. Well, you can leave the front row empty. If you... Come on, come on. Some of you going, this is really irritating. That's right, I'm being biblical, all right? Come down the front. Everyone come down the front and squash in together. No spare seats. No spare seats down the front here. Let's uh, all squeeze in. I'm going to move back. <laughs> That's it. It's beautiful. Keep coming. Keep coming. Come on, Gary's up the back there. Yeah, come on. Keep coming. I see some empty seats around the front here. Keep coming. If you're up the back, move down. Keep coming down. Some of you are going, this is irritating. That's right. That's what stirring up to, uh, to love is. Keep coming down. Keep coming. We've still got some spare seats in here. See, this is nicer, isn't it? Is this nicer? Has anyone not said hello to the person sitting next to them now? Yes, just say good day and tell them your name if you've never met them before. Now, you've done okay, right? I'm a bit disappointed. There's still a few empty seats, okay? 
This is provoking, right? This is, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 is provoke one another. Irritate one another toward love. And some of you are going, this is really cool. Now I've just realised I'm biblical all the time. I just irritate people all the time and they have to work hard to love me. Here's the thing. Your ability to love is dependent upon other people provoking you to love. Agape love, unconditional love. And here's the thing, you're going to need to get close enough to people so they can irritate you into love. Now, it doesn't mean they're irritating. Right? It doesn't say here, be irritating. It says irritate people into love. Exasperate people into love. Get on their case. Now, you come to church, part of the problem with the project, some of you might have just noticed this, that like the church is half empty now. And that, that's kind of, what we do is we kind of walk in, and I do it too, you kind of walk into church, and you're just going, I'm going to find a spot over there because you're looking for your, your seat buffer. You know what I'm talking about? Because you're sitting next to each other. Some of you are just going, I don't know, did I put B.O. Keller on this morning? Or D.O.? Do I have D.O.? Well, they're going to tell you if you don't have D.O. on, right? But do you get my point? You just kind of come in, you set up your buffer, and you kind of sit apart from other people. And the weird thing is, in a, in a Sunday morning kind of church session, uh, we're pretty good at kind of being individualistic, right? But God actually wants people to be in the thick of it together so they irritate each other and exasperate each other into love. So, and that's the big problem with Sunday mornings, right? Because a lot of people treat Sunday mornings like going to the movie, the movies, all right? You come, someone puts on a good show, you like the show, then you leave, and we get to stay an individual. God's not interested in individuals alone. God's mostly interested in, in corporate, in a collective sense for people, which means, and we're very open about the fact, people have said to us, oh, you want to try and do some community stuff on Sunday mornings? We just think, oh, that's... Sunday morning church services are an awkward vehicle to do community through because there's so many people, right? Which is why we've got community groups and why we really encourage each other to be people here to be really plugged in relationally to each other. You just need to do that. And some of you just go, you might be thinking, oh, that's just another thing I've got to do. No, it's going to be life to you. That's how God's decided that he's going to pour life out. That's how God's decided that he's going to teach you how to love other people is by you being with other people, True. The interesting thing is, you know, the old faith, hope and love's the only one you can't do on your own. True? You can do faith and hope on your own, but you can't do love on your own. You've got to get next to other people. You've got to get in relationships with people. The guy that I've quoted a few times, Paul Tripp, says this. He's got this DVD training series. I'll show you a clip later on from him, but he's got this training series called Your Walk With God as a Community Project. And it just is. Like if you go away from the project and you think, I'm going to draw closer to God by having a good quiet time, praying and maybe singing some worship songs on my own, you've missed everything I'm saying this morning, right? Because that's going to be a huge part of it, but that's not going to be the, the, full, the fullness of it. You, you actually need other people to spur you on. Now, you've heard me talk about it lots, but this absolutely happens between Diff and Nathan and I. They say some really irritating things to me, all right? They just do. It's really irritating, especially Nathan. Where's Nathan? <laughs> he does, right? And it's, they're awkward things. One of the things I appreciate, appreciate about Nathan is he asks awkward questions, right? Now, if I can just put it this way, he's not always right, but every single time he asks, asks me awkward questions, it makes me think about what I'm doing and think about whether I need to do something differently. And that's, 
kind of the way that community and relationships ought to work in the church. It's not meant to work like we come to church, we do church, we leave church. Doing church is, 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 is doing a relationship and it's, it's actually being together. I think individualism in the church is probably killing it. Probably. I'm uh, working uh, with uh, a lady at the moment. She's given me permission to, uh, to, to read this out to you. But she wrote this. She, she's done a little bit of study and she, uh, she actually lived in Indonesia for a while. And I asked her to do some, um, to write me a piece on uh, Indonesian culture versus Australian culture with regards to individualism and collectivism. This is fascinating. Thoughts, the body of Christ, so we all need each other. Each person has a different role. Yeah, I think that a collectivist culture gets this a lot more than our culture does. So our culture tells us that we should be independent, that we should be able to get through things by ourselves, that we shouldn't need others and that I am the most important. What I noticed in Indonesia, people aren't so focused on themselves but instead on the group. So in a collectivist culture, one is going to do what is best for the group. And it just worked at church. So at my church, everyone belonged, everyone served in some role. Well, that was partly because there was only about eight people in the whole church. (laughs) Think community group, right? Everyone used their gifts to serve everyone else. Whether that was music or cooking or cleaning the church, we would all do this together. And everyone had a responsibility to the other members of the church. When someone came to church or Bible study, it encouraged the other members. See, that sounds a lot different to, I didn't get anything out of it. Maybe it's not about you getting anything out of it. I mean, some people come to the project and then they leave and they're disappointed with what we did for them, you know. And I would ask them, well, what did you do for other people? They get upset sometimes because they weren't loved properly. And that's, that's an issue. But, you know, every bit as much of an issue is, well, who did you love at church? And why does everyone else always have to cater to you, but you're not thinking about catering to other people? If someone couldn't come, they were missed, and everyone else made sure that they were okay. And I guess it was expected that we go to church every week. When I was there, there was one Sunday when I didn't go, because I didn't feel like being around people because I was struggling with stuff. And I just realised that I'd missed out on having the opportunity to encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ and to care for them. Isn't that beautiful? She's not going, this is what I missed out on. I missed out on giving to other people. Now, I wonder whether, I'll just ask you that. Do you ever feel like that when you can't get to church or you can't get to community group? It's like, dang it, I missed out on giving to people. Because that would be a kind of a Jesus kind of gospel kind of centred approach to being with people, wouldn't it? And church stuff, it's like, I missed out on being a contributor. They were honest and they loved each other. This is the reason why I stayed at that church. When I first went, I didn't think I would because the services were in English, not Indonesian. After church each week, we would have tea or a meal together and everyone would share something they needed prayer for or something which God had been teaching them. And being honest and sharing stuff, they encouraged everyone else. When my friend's dad passed away and she went back home for a while, we all got together and called her and talked to her on the phone. And like simple things, if someone is sick, like with a cold or something, usually... In Australia, we would just leave them alone until they get, they get better. It's pretty true. And I think Australians would more want to be left alone too. That's interesting. Like that is a cultural thing, I think. But Indonesians will go and visit and take a meal or something for them. And it was just living life together. We went to church nearly every day. Some of you are going, oh, that'd be terrible. They love it. You see? 
for church, Bible study, music practice and devotions, prayer meetings and did other stuff together, it really showed me a picture of just being a family. So I think that these sorts of things don't really bother them as much. Like they get that we need each other. And concepts of friendships being even or owing someone something or paying someone back don't really come into it. And what she's saying there is, how often do we have kind of friendships? It's like, I invite you over for dinner, I kind of expect that you're going to invite me back. You know, we've got this, we get this mental thing going on where it's all got to be even. It's kind of Seinfeld episode at Even Stephen. I don't know if you remember that one. <laughs> it's all got to be even, right? And biblically, it doesn't always have to be even. In fact, a lot of the time, it's not going to be even. In fact, if you're a 1 Corinthians 12, someone's an arm, someone's a leg, someone's an eye, it's not going to be even because the eye brings something that no one else can pay him back for. And that's how you get even is by everyone, everything being uneven. Does that make sense? And everyone contributing. Everyone plays their own part. Everyone serves and is served and it works. I don't know. Does that make sense? And at the end, yeah, it does. Makes a lot of sense. All right. I'm going to really get cruising in. Notice it says in the middle there, it says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So here's basically where I want to finish today. I want to give you five reasons why Christians should go to church. Okay? I, I think someone said to me a little while ago that on any given Sunday in Toowoomba, there's a third of uh, people in, in Toowoomba that aren't in church. And I, I think that there's a growing number of people who think that, who are parading that line that you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. All right? So rather than me having a crack at them, I'm going to tell you why I think you need to be part of a church because I think it's really, really clear and I think there's five good reasons. Now, when I go through these, some of you go, oh, I know some people have been hurt. Yeah, I know that people get hurt, right? And I know that churches are imperfect and I know that they burn people and people get upset in them and there's divisions and there's damage and people need detox and all that sort of stuff, Right? But there still needs to, you still need to be able to see a momentum in people that's heading back <laughs> toward connecting in a church context. And here, here are the reasons why. Ah, just throw that one in. You're sinning if you neglect to meet with one another. Here we go. Number one, the Bible teaches that you need leaders to watch over you. Hebrews 13 is probably the clearest one. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. People say, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I'm just going to be a freelance Christian out there. And I would say, well, who's, who are your leaders? Who's leading you? Who's giving an account for you? Who's watching over you? Now, if they say no one, they ne- I think they need to be in some kind of structure, some kind of church-like structure that's going to provide that kind of covering for them. And they might go, well, I'm really mature and I'm, I'll be sweet with it. I'm just going, yeah, well, the devil's a real idiot, all right? And he's a really dangerous idiot and he can take anyone out. All right? And the way that God set things up is that you're supposed to have leaders over the top of you that watch over you, protect you and guide you and help you. All right? Reason one. You can read the rest um, later on. Reason two. The Bible regularly calls Christians to unity. This is Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. If you go in the middle bit there, they're eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's only one body and there's one Holy Spirit. And like 
you're meant to drift toward each other. That's kind of what he's saying. If you're actually a Christian, you drift toward each other. You don't kind of sit at home and just say, I'm, I'm a Christian and I don't need to go to church because that's not drifting toward anyone else. Generally, it's just drifting away or it's drifting toward individualism. So the, there's, a, there's a biblical impulse. If you actually belong to Christ, you'll drift toward his people. And there's, I mentioned this last night with some people who come over to our place for dinner, but there's, there's a line out there where people say, I love Jesus, but I just don't like his followers. Which is, I mean, there's, well, the truth is that we're all a mess, right? And we've probably all burnt people in this room and we've all been a dodgy follower, haven't we? And so God's command, God's impulse for people to move toward each other exists in the midst of dodginess. It, you just, because you're part of it. It's like, <laughs> there's so many hypocrites in the church and I just say, well, come and join us, you know? <laughs> Because probably everyone is. There needs to be an impulse and a drifting toward unity, not a drifting away from it, which I reckon is happening big time at the moment. Point three, the Bible assumes there's a formalised structure to the church. Now, I won't go into it, but a dude was doing a whole bunch of dumb stuff he shouldn't have been doing. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, you need to kick him out. Now, you can only kick him out if, if there's an in, true? You can, only get, you can only be out if there's an in. So there has to be some kind of formalised structure to church. Now, I'm not saying it has to be what we're doing, but there has to be some of it so that you, some of these processes actually work. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. Point number four, the body actually needs your gifts and you need the body's gifts. People who are on their own and are just thinking, I, I don't need to be in a church. I mean, there's so many varieties of gifts that God gives to people in the body. How are you actually ever going to be exposed to all of the varieties of gifts that God's accumulated for you or how are you actually going to, in a regular way, provide your gift in service to other people if you're not in some kind of structure where you're, you're with a bunch of people, you're, you're with more than your family? <laughs> you get what I'm saying? How are you going to do that? And I think that's another reason why uh, people need to be in a church. 1 Peter 4 verse 10 is very clear. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Right. Five. The early church gathered together in large groups where there was teaching, prayer, fellowship and communion. All right? It's very, very clear in Acts that the Christians still went to the temple but they also broke bread in homes and had meals together which is what we're trying to, trying to do at the project. We're going to get together on a Sunday. We're going to do the rest of church in relationships and community at other times. And some people go, well, I don't want to... I don't think it's right to have a mega church. Well, 3,000 people got saved in one day in Acts chapter 2, I think it was. Now, if three people become Christians, there's probably, that's a mega church, right? There's 6,000 people there. So it's not right to say you should only ever meet in small groups because it's clear that they met in large groups sometimes. Does that make sense? Five. Six, actually. Here we go. I said it was five. This is the best one. Jesus regularly went to church. Why should a Christian be in church? I think if Jesus did, that's probably a pretty good reason. And his church seemed much more dysfunctional than ours. Here's what it says in Luke 4 verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he, and he stood up to read. Do you notice that? His custom was to go to church on the Sabbath day. That's what he did. So every person who says, I can be a Christian and not go to church... Is not being like Jesus. And they're probably sinning because God said, don't neglect meeting together. 
get together in small and in big, it appears. All right. I might finish at that point. <laughs>